Hello, I'm Pat Nurse, Creative Director of Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. You're listening to a podcast that was recorded as part of our March 2022 festival, supported by Visit Victoria and the State Government of Victoria. It features Nigella Lawson in conversation with fellow author, journalist and broadcaster Matt Preston at Fed Square. It's a talk that touches on Nigella's experiences in the pandemic, what she calls the velvet of silence, the silken eiderdown of solitude, the glorious selfishness of cooking for yourself, the power of the fish finger sandwich, and on how Melbourne is the best medicine. Take it away, Matt. Nigella Lawson. <laughs> I'll say that again because that wasn't a big enough cheer. Nigella Lawson. <laughs> But that isn't, still isn't good enough, because really, no, the, what, we need, what we You're need... You're not it, a what, pantomime. No, 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 I want to say one more thing, because this is even more important. Nigella Lawson in Melbourne. Uh, I'm, can I interrupt you to say that everyone keeps saying, thank you for coming to Melbourne, and I feel like, Melbourne, thank you for having me here. I mean, it's the deepest pleasure for me. Why, how did the, the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival pitch coming here? Because it's a long way to come. People have been nervous about travelling and that you're here headlining the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. I'd love to know how that, that process came about to bring you here. Well, I knew I'd eat well. <laughs> and that's a very cogent argument. Uh, but I feel that, look, Melbourne has suffered more than other places in the very long lockdown. But we've all been in one way or another I mean those we're lucky if we haven't you know been terribly ill but nevertheless we've been looking at the same patch of sky and for the first time I in I suppose living memory not being able to to travel to go out and so I I've been dreaming of coming back and I almost thought it was a wind-up uh, <laughs> when I was asked that I don't need to be pitched, I don't need to be persuaded because it's a real privilege to be here. And I have to say, even, you know, Ant, you've, Anthea, sorry, you've done, you, you and everyone who's been working on this has done something incredible because I've felt from day to day the sort of sparkle of electricity in the air has just been getting sort of fizzier and fizzier. And it feels alive and there's a sort of palpable happiness. And I think I can feel it. we all need both personally and I suppose as countries and as cities after something like this to feel we're getting our confidence back. Because we've all been a bit, you know, we've been reclusive. I mean, I was just saying earlier, I remember saying to a friend of mine in the middle of the first lockdown, I was by myself for four months, and I said, what? You meet me used to go out at night? Like, it seemed so odd. And I feel that this has kind of turned it round. I feel like it's alive. There's things happening. There's, and it is about the food and wine of Melbourne and of Victoria, which are wonderful. But it spreads far and wide. All creativity is connected to other forms of creativity. All of us need something creative. That's why, in a way... We need food to live, but it's a creative playfulness about it as well. And we've all been maybe gotten a rut. And so I feel this is like, I feel personally, it's like a shot in the arm coming here. So thank you.
I'm sure everyone will be very interested to know what have been your, your personal highlights of this trip, but more importantly, last time when you were here, you packed six jars of burnt fig jamny luggage. What's going to go into the luggage what, this that time? that I took back? Yeah. Well, I feel now you've made it public, I'll have my cases searched. Um... <laughs> Yeah, that's it's be slightly sabotaged me there. I've got some of the wonderful Alice in Frames tsunami, and so I've got that, and I'm going back with that. And uh, I hope I'm Alice. I'm not giving anything away. I've got a prototype of a tube, so you never know. I might just be lying in the plane, you know, with the tube. Have I pronounced the name of your tsunami? So sorry, I'm being very stupid. Anyway, so I got the two mommy and I'm going back with that. And uh, I'm now beginning to worry. I have not taken enough back, but, you know, there we go. I know who to talk to yeah, if I need more. It can always be shipped, can't it, Alice? Always I can shipped. always come back. Oh, uh, yes. Wouldn't that be amazing if you could come back? Um, look, I really want to talk about our conversation to be about the book. I think this book is... Very special. Um, I love it. I think it's one of my favourites for, for a while. I think it's something very special about it. Um, I want to start by one of the central phrases, which seems really central to you and to where you approach food, which is, I see every meal, every mouthful as a celebration of life. Okay, so I do, because I feel... Well, I don't want to you know, be Debbie Downer, but my late husband had oral cancer, and he couldn't eat. And you don't realise that it isn't just about the food and the eating and the, the taste. That's really important. But it connects us to other people so much and you're so isolated. And I suppose because we were isolated in a different way, it made me think about that so much. And I felt this very strongly during lockdown as well. People would go, oh, how are you coping and how is it? And I felt like I've got a roof over my head. I've got food on my table. I've got work I can do without endangering myself. I'm incredibly fortunate. And I feel it's so right to be grateful for everything. And food is life without it at a most literal level, but also the pleasure of it, the way it makes you connected. I feel that more strongly even here because of all the produce and that beautiful countryside you have you're connected not with other people even if it's just a memory of a meal you ate with someone but you're connected to the ground to the earth to the generations that have come before you and for me it really is a way of saying I'm alive I'm enjoying it I think you you know there's one time around and you have to pile up your plate and eat and enjoy and be grateful There, there's a fair amount in the book about the role of cooking almost being like full body immersion in terms of being a meditative process. Well, I say meditative process, so it's as near as I'm going to get <laughs> uh, to meditation because I feel there's something a bit wrong or I disagree with this modern idea, contemporary idea that you relaxing means doing nothing. So if you're of the fizzing and popping sort of person... Doing nothing just means your head is, you know, emitting strange noises. Whereas cooking, I don't mean difficult cooking, which is nervous making, but you're so in the present, you're forced in the present. And the smells and the sound of everything, and you're sort of, I don't know what she was once, it's a neuro something and I have forgotten it because it had some nice 
you know, fizzy wine earlier. If I burp, please take my apologies now. Um, but the thing is, our brains, while immensely sophisticated, cannot worry and take in smell or touch at the same time. If you're kneading bread and you're concentrating on that, you have to make yourself, and you're focusing on that, you're no longer going on about other things. When you smell food, when you stir it, that is what takes over. And I suppose what I feel is, by cooking, you occupy the realm of the senses, not not a, a sort of the, the mental world. And it's as if you you let your intelligence move down from here to your sense of touch, to your sense of smell, to just being in that moment. And so that's very important. And then you can eat it. <laughs> well, what sustains you when you write? What's the snack you go for? It's a really difficult thing, which is I dip too much if I don't eat, but I can't write about food if I'm full because you need to have an edge of hunger. But I've always felt that. I remember when I was you know, a kid at school, I read that hunters do better on an empty stomach, so I didn't eat much before exams. I try and have something. I mean, I'm very happy with some cheese with an apple. I don't mean like having a huge portion, but something that I feel will keep me going. And also, I mean, I have to say also, I, I'm no stranger to the fish finger sandwich. The fish, sorry, fish finger sanger when I'm working. Um, this book is written during that period of lockdown. Yeah. Um, there's a beautiful line about how during those, those months you came to terms with being alone but not lonely. Well, it was really, really interesting because I had written an article in January 2020 on the distinguished occasion of my 60th birthday. And I had written how one of the things that I didn't think of ages like a terrible thing, what it did... I had grown to love solitude. Now, obviously, you know, that was also because I haven't really had a life of solitude because, you know, kids, etc. And, you know, it's not that I want them gone, <laughs> but they want, you know, but, but I felt that I'd grown to love solitude and need it. And then what, during lockdown, I almost experienced it as a, as a tactile thing. It just felt like, it was a bit like a silk down or satin down with a cashmere blanket on top. And I just reveled in it. And I also found that ceremony of cooking for myself. You know, the first two weeks of lockdown, I didn't even observe mealtimes and I could only do carbs. If it wasn't bread, it was potatoes or rice or chocolate. And that's all I did. And after two weeks, I went, no, 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 I need structure. And this is what food does as well. So I fed myself and I adored it. But I think solitude is something that we need and maybe we need it more as we get older. I don't know. But I, I really loved it and I also gave me time to reflect more and I could think and a lot of that went into the book and I think that this is valuable I think sometimes that sort of antsy going from one thing to another it catches up with you are you an introvert well I don't know whether I'm an introvert or not I mean I hardly opened my mouth until I was 19 but in some ways I am I mean I was explained to me once that 
it's absolutely wrong to think of introverts as being shy and extroverts as being, you know, all out there. The real difference is that introverts need to get sort of refuel, regenerate by being by themselves, and extroverts gain energy with being people. You know, people give them energy, whereas for introverts, often it's very draining. Well, I think we're all a bit of both. There are times when... I think I do get energy from people and I often get my best ideas through talking with other people and that's why in a way I haven't been able to move on to another book because I've been by myself and yet in a sense we all need a bit of time to ourselves too. I certainly, all I'm not good at is noise. I hear everything quite you know, more... Oh, yes, you more, do. I hear everything a lot. I seem to... I smell a lot. I mean, I, I get very overstimulated too easily. So often, I slightly feel I'm misfiring if there's... I don't do background music. I love it. If I want to dance, great. When I wash up, I listen to music. But I can't do it in the background, and I can't have a television on in the background. I watch television only with other people, because if the choice is between silence and television... I will choose silence and I'll read. But if I've got someone else there, silence is out of the question, so I may as well... That's when I watch all the things I like to watch. Also, I like to talk throughout. <laughs> <laughs> I like to discuss every plot, every character. Do you like those shoes? And that sort of thing. So I, for me, it's like that. But I, in between that, I love that sort of... the velvet of silence. The, um, during this book, you obviously cooked a lot for yourself. There are lots of recipes for one there. Is it different to cook for one person as opposed to a family or a group? There's a glorious selfishness about it, which you don't have to accommodate anything to someone's, anyone else's taste. I've often cooked for myself. You know, as I say, John couldn't eat, and I, you, know, you can't just then not eat. I think it gives you confidence cooking for yourself because you're not thinking about judgment and you're more, you concentrate more on, do I like the taste of this? Do I want to add something? This tastes a bit flat. What am I going to do? Whereas when you cook for other people, often you're too taken up with how it will be received. And I think that can... It takes away your confidence in a while, and I th although confidence is a great thing, I sort of believe it's it's sort of less glamorous cousin competence, you know, needs to be gained first, and you do that by just thinking, what will it taste like if I add this? Oh no, that was a bad idea. I won't do it again. Or no, I like that. I'm going to add more of that. This ridiculous notion that you're not allowed to make mistakes. Of course, you have to make a mistake. That's how. You know, I don't know who it was that said, you know, failure is not the opposite of success. It's a very necessary step on the way. And I think you have to remember that. And in cooking as well, that you don't need people to go, you know, see them going <laughs> and putting it in their napkin. So if you feel like it's not great, you've learned. But I think it's important. Um, you talk about... Cooking obviously being very nurturing, but you also talk about cooks being control freaks. Yes, I know. You know, it makes me laugh that everyone always talks about cooks as if they're nice people. <laughs> um, and whereas I certainly do think that cooks tend to be conflict-averse, whereas chefs sometimes seem to be, you know, in a desperate hurry 
to, <laughs> to invite conflict. I also do think there is something controlling about the cook in the household. After all, you're determining what people are going to eat. I can't imagine how it would be as, as if every day I let someone else choose what I was going to eat. I mean, it's nice once or twice. <laughs> but, um, so I think there is a control thing, but I think that if I might bring us back to, I'm sorry to do that since we're trying to move forward, but to lockdown and to, to COVID, which is when things are out of control, you have a great need to control your own environment. And I think it helps. So control isn't always a bad thing. I think we need it as humans. And I think it's our way of feeling a bit more contained and a bit safer. Because when it's the world doesn't feel safe, you need to create that for yourself. So yes, I think we can be irritatingly controlling. But I also think it control is often a self-protective measure. And certainly in the time, it's a way of having a control when you've got no control of everything else. Completely. Yeah. Control does also mean, Nigella, not having to follow orders, doesn't it? When you get a recipe from someone else, or even from yourself. No, I'm actually quite good about following other people's recipes, at least the first time, because I think, no, no, I, no, because I don't expect you to follow my recipes the second time, but if you're gonna do it, do it my way the first time, Cooking is not, doesn't live on the page. It lives in your kitchens. You don't have to use the herbs I use. You can change everything. But it's a basic courtesy to do the recipe the one time. However, I am forever not obeying myself. And I go like, oh, she says that. I'm not paying attention. And I think, oh, no, that's me. Um, but I think... I think, you know, I'm, this is where my kids go, oh, mum, not another life lesson, but, um, <laughs> you know, what's true in the kitchen is true out of the kitchen. And, and what we need in life is a framework and a structure. But we also need when to let go of the, that and just sort of go with the flow or adjust to the moment. Human beings have to be adaptable. We've learned that. But cooking is about adjusting, adapting. We all have different palates. You have different things in your fridge at that time. Human beings would have fallen out of the evolutionary loop a long time ago if you had to follow a recipe and cook things exactly. You found one thing, you know, when you were foraging one day or now you go to the stores, you have one thing, or oh, this is more in season, you change it. Food is like language. It changes, and we go with that. But there's still a structure, there's still a grammar, and you can acquire that, but you don't have to... You know, it's not about bossing people about. Although, <laughs> although I'll leave it there. One of the most captivating chapters in the book is about the joy of brown food. Now, brown food, as we know, is kind of... It's very hard to photograph. We don't see it in the yeah. glamorous magazines. But you love it. You love well, the whisper. I do, I, because I'm, I object to sort of fashion in food to the extent... Of course, everything is... You know, human beings are a fickle lot, and we love novelty. And sometimes that can be wonderful. But sometimes you want to go back to... You know, the dishes that comforted you when you were a child. And sometimes you do want, 
you know, a bowl of stew. Or, you know, you had the... I'm going to say something really inappropriate, but, you know, sorry. But you know that one of the little canapes was my burnt aubergine, burnt eggplant and onion dip. And I say in the recipe, if you, you know, have small children and are sort of changing nappies regularly, this will be a familiar sight. However, it tastes great. And I think that... You can't always be making things look, you know, like Instagram worthy because it's also about taste and actually long cooking takes the colour out. And I feel, I feel this is a thing I came to the conclusion. It was a metaphor for ageing, which is, you know, the longer it cooks, it fades a bit to look at, but it deepens in flavour. <laughs> There are a number of references to your mother and your grandmother's book, particularly your mother and, and the recipes that she's taught you. Your first steps in cooking were in her kitchen. What sort of experience was that like, cooking with her? Pretty terrifying. So you know how now people want to entertain their children? My mother had absolutely no interest in entertaining her children. She just, you know, there were four of us and she needed help. I had a sister, uh, Thomasina, who was 16 months younger than me and about five and... Six, we were shoved up on a rickety on rickety chairs by our. It was called the New World Range, Gasa, and we'd stand there and we'd stir and we'd. We weren't doing it for let's have a fun afternoon. It was getting Sunday lunch on the table, and like making mayonnaise. I mean, I still I make mayonnaise a lot, but I still slightly hyperventilate because my mother was like the world's most impatient person. I wonder where I got it from? Or was my grandmother? My grandmother would have said I came by it honestly. And um, so one of us would pour the oil and one of us would whisk. And the one who was pouring the oil was always told off for pouring too fast. And the one who was whisking was always told off for whisking too slowly. But the point is we learned to cook because we needed to cook and I didn't realise people didn't. So it taught me a lot. And in fact, I feel her impatience and her, her way, I didn't even know cookbooks existed then. Her way of trusting her instinct were very good teachers. And so I'm grateful to her, even though at the time it was a bit frightening. But you know, it matters to me that I do her food. And we go, because again, I feel like, you know, my mother died at 48, so my children obviously couldn't ever taste her food. So cooking her food is the only way they're going to have her food. It's Mother's Day in the UK today. And so I always, every year, I have you know, one of my mother's recipes, which I've cooked at home forever, not pretty to look at, not in any way fashionable or something like that. But we pass on these memories and that's important. And families have a language and they have a food language too. And a lot of it is brown in my family. Um, your, the way you cook cabbage is your mother's way, the chicken, you've got a number of chicken dishes in your mother's, but there's one recipe for summer pudding, one dessert from your mother. Your mother only had one dessert. Well, we didn't eat, we didn't eat puddings and desserts, so funnily enough, I hadn't really baked much or come to that until my second book, and I was 40. So when people say to me, like, oh, I can't bake, I didn't start till later, and then I realised, like, Bakers have been really peddling it about. They act like it's fast. It's a scam. 
It's so easy. You've got one bowl. You're mixing it. You put it in one dish. You put it in the oven. But yeah, so she made summer pudding. You know, so I do like that. It reminds me of her. But I, I love, I've got more of a savoury tooth than a sweet tooth, although the older I get, the sweeter tooth I have. But I do love baking and I do love making sweet things. As much as you loved being the custard monitor at school? Well, you know I was stripped of that honour. Um, so I was custard monitor at primary school I was not a well-behaved person so I plagued my mortal enemies if they said no skin I gave them a lot of skin and I give hardly if someone said can I have lots of gravy and I'm a teeny bit of custard great sorry well you know custard is sweet gravy and so, no, I, I had my stripes torn off. <laughs> we have to discuss your propensity to break the internet, which you've been doing quite recently. Your pithy and, I suspect, maybe throwaway line about ambush by cake. Well, that was because I was so furious with this excuse, you know, Boris Johnson having a party during lockdown. And I thought it was also ridiculous thing to say, I, was, I said, oh, it's going to be titled my next book. It won't be. But, 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 but are you surprised then when you see that that reaches 60 million people? I mean, that, that became multi, 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 I shared don't know, and shared I don't shared. really look at that. And I tell you what I do think as well. A lot of things did become memes and did do that. It's not about me. People were desperate for distraction. It was bad news, bad news, bad news. So people reacted to that. So it's not about me so much as someone desperately needing something to laugh about when there wasn't a lot to laugh about, and I get that. Which brings us neatly onto <laughs> the microwave. Now, Do you know, it's ruined it for me now. No, I have to call it the you-know-what. Now, I want to share something with you which most of the people will know in the room. We have a store called Target, and it's called Target. Yeah, of course. We have a town called Mount Gambia. It's called Mont Jambier. Yes, exactly. We, we, we have Carnegie. It's Carnegie. So when we, when we see your version of Microwave, I think every Australian goes, yeah, she gets the gag. Yes, she knows. But, but the Americans didn't. They actually thought I... You know, like that bit in um, High Society when they start speaking French in Philadelphia? No, they didn't. But us, like everyone here, being Australian, would understand why, like... If you're making a lamington, you might need some desecrated coconut. <laughs> you know, we get it. Um, has that question, though, now become the new... And I know you hate the question about guilty pleasures, and I wonder whether the micro question has now become the new guilty pleasure question for you. Not, not really, because I object to the guilty pleasure in a very intense way, Whereas I brought it on myself that I didn't even realise I was saying the word because that's what I call it at home. So I don't mind that. The guilty pleasure seems to me tragic because I feel pleasure is something to feel grateful for, not to persecute yourself about. So that makes me sort of unhappy. Whereas my own stupidity, I've grown to live with it at this age. <laughs> I'm going to throw some sentences at you and I want oh, your no, reaction. Don't, I, I'm not going to be fast. No, no, no. no. no, no, no. These, these, are, these, are, these are very, very short okay. questions. Should perfection ever be the benchmark of the home cook? No. Thank you very uh, much indeed. It, you know, it's terrible. It's, it paralyzes people. It's frightening. 
And the next question, and it's a horrid question, because when well, I know I Because you're a horrid person. I am a horrid... <laughs> I am your, <laughs> I am, I am your boisterous brother, as, as you know. And so I'm going yes, to ask this question. I know. Um, Don't I know? <laughs> you feel like you're really happy at the moment. Is that true? Well, I don't want to, you know, tempt the fates, yeah. but yes, I am. I am. I'm content. But you know, there's no such. I mean, everything's in flux, and I feel things intensely. So, a blue sky, or you know. Uh, Delicious plum make me very happy. You know, stepping into a puddle can make me very unhappy all in one day. Um, and I, you know, big things and little things can upset you. And mostly we're very good at powering through the, the big difficult things, but it's a little... The only thing that really makes me cry is stubbing at my toe. And yet it's not a big important thing. But yes, I'm, I feel I'm much more positive than I was when I was younger. Not, not that I wasn't. I, it's just that I'm, I think, well, you know what? I've eaten more dinners than I'm going to eat. And so I'm feeling like full steam ahead. Hey, I, might, I mean, you never know. You know, science is wonderful. Um, <laughs> but anyway, what I feel is we've all learnt that actually just being... You know, being alive, being in the world is a blessing. So I'm not going to be worrying about the small things, except when I do. <laughs> well, look, on that note, we have to say, Nigella Lawson, thank you for bringing a beautiful slice of joy into all our lives today. Thank you so much for being well, here. Thank you all. Thank Melbourne you. Wine. Thank you, Melbourne. I have to say, officially, Melbourne is the best medicine. Thank you, Nigella. We couldn't have said it better ourselves. You've been listening to Nigella Lawson in conversation with Matt Preston, recorded at the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival in March 2022, and brought to you by Visit Victoria and the State Government of Victoria. For more on the festival and about Melbourne, come and see us at melbournefoodandwine.com.au. I'm Pat Nurse, and thank you for joining us. Thank you.